Hey, everybody. It's Bill Faulkner. Welcome to the Mastering Rod Building Podcast and the ultimate guide to building frogging rods. I'm delighted to have with me as my special guest today, Kyle Welcher. For those of you who don't know, Kyle is an elite series bass professional angler. He's uh, been a full-time elite series angler for four years. One of his signature strengths is his frogging and flipping and power fishing. So uh, he considers his home waters the Chattahoochee River and He's golly, been in 40 tournaments. I think you've appeared in two classics. You've finished in the money 33 times. You have a second place finish. You have a third place finish. You've been in the top 10, like seven times, the top 20, 15 times. And I think uh, something like 360,000 in tournament earnings career to date. And perhaps most notably, and I know this must put a smile on your face and your wife Hunter's, you are currently atop the angler of the year standings, which is no mean feat, my friend. So congratulations. I think that's, uh, that's, that is so much harder with the consistency required and how well you have to do on every day of every tournament and make all the cuts and everything. So congratulations, you know, still a lot of season left. We got what, three more events. I know it's not over, but it's an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you while you're sitting at the top of the the leaderboard. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'll tell you, you're going to give uh, Dave Mercer a run for his money with that intro there. <laughs> that that, that <laughs> well, sounded pretty good. Giant bass. Hey, listen, time, anytime we want to get, get a good old border rivalry, get an American against a Canadian. Come on, man. It's time for us to take it back. Put me on that way in stage. I'll give him a run for yep. his money. We'll go. Right. Yeah. I, I, I probably have an embarrassing natural, number of hours watching Mercer. So he does a brilliant job. Yeah. Well, hey, I like to always ask everybody who comes on. So you're a very interesting guest, uh, not only because of your demonstrated expertise with frogging and, you know, power fishing, but also because you're a rod builder. So I, I always ask my guests these same questions. So you're going to get two questions. You Lucky you. And first one is just kind of how did you get into fishing? Obviously, you're a professional angler. This is a big deal, but you have kind of an interesting story, and I don't know all of it, but you went to nursing school, and then you're also, you're something of a card player too, right? Like, t- talk to me about this. Like, how, take me on the path. How'd you get into professional angling? Or how'd you start fishing and then wind up on the elite? Yeah, so, living in South or Central Alabama, I live kind of in actually East Alabama, but uh, you're just going to be exposed to it. Like, everybody around here fishes, like, they're on every boat ramp, every bridge, Everybody has a boat. It's like half the house that you drive by has a boat in the yard. And it's not pontoon boats. Like, it's fishing boats, you know? So, just in this area, you're going to be exposed to fishing. And as early as I was exposed to it, it was just instantly an obsession. Like, my mom actually tells me a story about how she had to drive. Like, whenever I was young, she'd have to drive home. And she would drive the long way home to not drive over any bridge because I would just tell her I want to get out and fish every single time we drove over any water. So, that was whenever I was four years old, five years old, you know, so right. every since I was first exposed to it, it's just been an absolute obsession. And there's just something about being in nature. There's, it's just so cool to just be outside in nature, on the water. And then also it's like you're, you have a puzzle that you're trying to figure out every single day. It's completely different pieces. Every single day is completely different. You know, you go, you get large mouth, deep ones, shallow ones. There's just so many different moving parts and variables to it that it never really gets old. Like it never gets stale, never gets stagnant. So it's really, really cool thing to have, have as a profession because it's not just like busy work. Like it's like mental and physical and you're always traveling and doing stuff different. So I've just always been obsessed with it and I could not be happier in the way that my you know career has progressed to where I can actually do it. But yeah, like and I said, you're fishing I against go, the best anglers in the world. So 
and, and that's where I want to be. Cause like, right. if I, if I lose, I want to lose to the best. And whenever right. I do win, I want everybody who's the best to be there because it's not about the money. It's not about the trophy. It's it's the pride. And you know, and Hey, I was the best this week. Like th- that was me. I'm the one who figured it out the best. And I don't want, you know, the 20 best guys in the world somewhere else. I want them there because when I win, it's going to mean that much more. I don't want it in the back of my mind that, Hey, he wasn't here when I won or else I wouldn't right. have won. Like, no, I want you there because I right. want to beat you, you know? Yep. So I think it, I think it must like take that I, competitive I, drive. Yeah. It, it takes competitiveness and also a little bit of selfishness. Just yep. realistically, you have to be to, to partake in something like this. But that's just just the fact of the matter, you know? Yeah. So you also now, so, uh, so that's helpful. T- talk to me about this whole nursing school and uh, uh, gambling thing, too. Is that on the record or are we off the record there? No, I mean, there's a lot of people that have, you know, it's, it's pretty well documented. I, um, So I went to UAB mainly okay. because I was going to go to Auburn University for fishing. Uh-huh. And well, for you know, for something else, but to fish. And then Auburn told me basically, as a freshman, they wouldn't really let me go to any big tournaments. You know, I mean, the big regional tournaments in college. So I called UAB and I was talking to the president of their club, and they was like, "Hey, we have qualifiers, and if you do the best in the qualifiers, you'll get to go no matter what." And Auburn told me that there's no chance I was going. So I said, "All right, I'm going to UAB because I plan on doing good in qualifiers." You know, right? So I went up there, and that's what I enrolled, that's what I enrolled into was nursing you know nurse school and i did all the prereqs and stuff like that so yeah, yeah. that whole time though, i was playing poker at home before i went to college and high school and stuff like that. i was playing the underground games and all that stuff mm-hmm. I got UAB and i end up doing the i never actually went to nursing school but i did okay. all the nursing prereqs and then i submitted an application to nursing school so okay. i actually got accepted into nursing school and the morning that they called me to do the like, because I had already got an email back that I was accepted into the nursing program. And I had an X amount of time to, you know, finish the application and pick my classes and all that type of stuff. Right. So I'm kind of putting it off and I'm like, man, I don't really want to be a nurse, whatever. Well, they call me one morning and it's like three days until the deadline. And I, and they wake me up. It's like early in the morning. I've been playing poker the night before. And they woke <laughs> me up at like eight in the morning. And I told them, they said, you haven't filled out your, you haven't, you know, picked your classes yet for nursing school. And I, I'd won like $1,000 playing poker the night before. And, you know, at that point in time, that was actually a decent amount of money. Oh, sure. And I was like, give it to somebody else. And I hung the phone up and I went back to sleep and never thought about it again. And I, I, I never really wanted to do it. Just to me, it made a lot of sense that if you got a nursing degree, you could travel nurse. I could travel oh, and play yeah. poker, travel and fish. You know, it, 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 was a, it was a very solid option. Oh, it's but a great saying, option but, these days, especially, man, uh, you could hardly yeah. pick a better field if you, you want to be working all the time and wherever and however you want to. Yeah. Nursing degree is extremely <laughs> valuable. So that's fascinating. I can honestly say you're the only, uh, you know, nursing applicant poker playing elite series pro that I've ever interviewed. So this is very interesting. And you, you also build rods, right? So talk to me about that. Uh, how, how did you get into that? So the way that started, I actually have a buddy of mine that I still fish with. And so 10 years ago, it seemed like rod building was mostly old guys. You know, just that's kind of what it was, it seemed like. And I have seen the transition locally just in the past six, seven years. A lot more young people. Like, like there's guys at Auburn University building rods. You know, my little brother was building rods. Like there are a lot more young people that are coming into it. So I had a friend of mine that lives close to me, and he was the first person – that was in my age group at all that I knew that built rods. Cause you know, there's right. some local shops around here that build rods and repair tips and stuff like that. But so he was building rods. He had a good mentor. And the way it started was the first time I ever did it, I went over to his house 
just to replace some guys, you know? So we go over there and I got rods with three or four guys that are off of them. Right. So we replace them and let them dry. Then we replace another one, let them dry. So I'm like, that wasn't that hard, you know? Right. Like that's not like what I thought it was, you know? Right. So, and, I, and then I started customizing rods. So basically if I throw a jig, I want a certain type of hook keeper. But if, if I'm going to throw a Texas rig, I want a certain type of hook keeper. A right. crankbait, I want a certain type of hook keeper. Yep. So I started like customizing them like that. And all right. that was about at the same time with him helping me and stuff like that. So wasn't long after that, I was like, let's just try to build a whole one, you know, right. build an entire rod. Right. And it's it was surprisingly simple. And then at first I didn't really have a, you know, like a thought process to exactly what made because it's all a system between the handle link, the real seat, the stripper guide, all the rest of the guys, you know, he's the KTs to the, you know, the PIP, all that stuff. It's, it's a system that makes the rod cast, you know, right. a certain way. Right. And after a couple, so I, I built one with like size four guys on it, right? And try to put braid on it, six pound braid. Well, I could feel the braid dragging on the guys. Mm -hmm. So my next one I build, I put number fives on it. And then it's a completely different rod. Because yeah. because whenever the braid gets wet, it actually swells and gets right. particles on it and stuff like that. So right. with, with a five, it would cast phenomenally. So now my mind's like blown because I'm like, the guide is this much bigger and the right. rod throws completely different. Right. So that was kind of the day where I'm like, okay, so it's not just customizing hook keepers. Like everything needs to be a certain way if you're going to make a rod that's technique specific. And, and you don't always have to. There's general ways to do it. But that was the first time where I was like, you can have an advantage by building rods to a certain system for certain applications. And, and that's exactly like the day the light bulb went off for me. And I was like, okay, it's time. Like this is what we're going to do now. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't have said it better. That's an excellent uh, description. And so you build a lot of like really technique specific ultralight kind of maximum performance rods. That's kind of fighter jets is kind of the thing that you're mostly building, right? Yep. And, and so that leads us right so, into kind of today's main topic. And that's, you know, frogging and power fishing. And I know we could, to me, the, the, there's so much to talk about with flipping and so much to talk about with frogging. If, if I limit you for a second, just in the interest of time, right? And we talk about frog fishing. Um, so clearly you're one of the best on tour. I mean, when we, when we think about frogs, we think about you, we think about Dean Rojas, right? Like maybe a few others. I know Fred Rambanis has thrown one a lot, but so, so talk to me about that. Just like, when do you know it's time to throw a frog? Like, obviously I think of frogs in the summertime. I think of really heavy cover where I can't really practically fish anything else, but I know the fish are there. Like, talk to me about when you, when you put down the crankbait rod or whatever and pick up the frog rod. Like, what do you, what are you looking for when you're in a tournament that, you know, like, Hey, I think I can do well with this frogging bite. For me, I'm looking for shallow, isolated pieces of cover that are too thick to throw other baits. Like, you know, it's too thick to throw a chatterbait or vibrating jig or spinnerbait or stuff like that. Or you just need to skip it back up under there. And I look for it on kind of marshy lakes, pre-spawn. Seems like Highland Reservoirs, it's not good at all until post-spawn. Whenever we go to Florida, we go to, you know, South Alabama in my area, they'll bite it in the pre-spawn. As soon as those fish move up shallow, Okay. Like that's whenever I start looking, like whenever they first make that push, that's where I start looking. And that's where I'm going to throw it into places where you can't really get another bait. Like, because, you know, like a frog is a four wheel drive bait. Like it's just one of them that you can literally throw on cement and not tear it up. Or you can throw it in grass. Like you can literally throw it anywhere and it's not right. going to get fouled or, or scuffed or, you know, hung or anything like that. So right. whenever they get up there and they start trying to push up and pre-spawn, 
or post or ethane in those types of super thick cover, under bushes, overhangs, skip it under shallow docks. That's a great thing. You start seeing pollen mats. You start seeing blue mats, pine straw mats, every kind of stuff that starts to wash up in March, April, all that pollen stuff. That's right. whenever in my brain, I'm like, that's the time to pick it up first. And then I throw it until October, November, all year wow. long from basically March to November. I'm going to have one on the front day. Okay. And is it a time of day technique for you or a weather conditions? Are <laughs> you basically based on that structure? You'll throw it any time, any weather, any whatever. I'll throw it any time. And I'll tell you this, I'll, I prefer it early in the morning or late in the evening whenever there's shade on the banks or shade on the, on the actual water that I'm fishing. But the biggest fish if I get a bite in the middle of the day, it's always a big one. Like 90% of the time, it's going to be a big one. And it's always skipping it under trees, skipping it under docks, just back up in shade and stuff where the fish are kind of hanging out. So, I mean, I, I throw it all day long, but I won't just like, it won't be all I throw, but I'll pick it up situationally throughout the day and say, hey, there's a, there's some blown-in pine straw. I'll throw it in there. Just make two casts with it. And I may not pick it back up for another hour. Then I'll pick it up and make two more casts with it whenever you get a bite on it usually one that helps yeah well and that's interesting you say that so i am obsessed with top water i would rather catch you know five fish all day on top water than 15 you know carolina rigging or something not that there's anything wrong with carolina rigging of course i'm fun fishing not tournament fishing but one of the things i do notice is it seems like one of the things i like about the frog bite besides that it's a top water bite is it seems like you catch better than average size fish for whatever body of water you're on when you can get bit on that bait. Right. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Talk to me a little bit about, um, about color selection, right? Because the frogs go from very realistic to like, this doesn't look like any frog, uh, unless it's had a nuclear experiment run on it, you know, or something. So how do you, how do you go about selecting colors? I've heard varying theories. How do you think about color? So, in my personal opinion, the frog makes such a disturbance on the top of the water. Unless mm-hmm. unless you're moving it extremely slow, it's got a ripple. And you know how it is whenever you're trying to look through water and there's a ripple on it. You really, it's all distorted. You really right. can't tell. So I think that's all just kind of almost novelty. I think fish okay. can see a hue of it. Like if you're going to throw a, a brim colored frog, it's going to be like a all frog that's gold or yellow or chartreuse and white or something like that. Like they can tell that it's, that's the hue of it and it's kind of that color but i bet they can't see the little polka dots on the side and all that type of stuff (laughs) yeah for me i keep it very simple i throw a lot of black frogs i throw a good chunk of you know white ones and then i have a bluegill colored one and then usually i'll throw a green pumpkin or something like that so i keep it like i have every single color frog known to man and i actually made a youtube video one time where i was fishing on the river and every single time i caught a bass i cut it off a time a different color and it never slowed down. It, it, there was no difference to them at all. It was Interesting. Okay, I haven't seen that video. We'll have to link to it, and I'll go. I'll go watch it. That's fascinating. Okay. Well, that that's good. That makes me feel better. So throw throw whatever you're confident in. Basically, is what you're saying, right? I wouldn't throw anything that's like bright blue, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but if it looks like it swims, I'd probably you know it's it's fine to imitate it. All right. Excellent. Um, so, so let's talk about, we talked about the, the frogs and the color and when you're throwing it a little bit, obviously fishing, excuse me, around cover. So you need some pretty stout gear. Uh, I'm assuming I, I always throw them on bait casting. I feel like I've mostly seen you throw it on bait casting. You're pretty much always throwing it on a bait casting setup. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about 100%. that setup. Yeah. So this is one thing that I do different than a lot of guys. Okay. I actually throw it on a seven foot six rod. Most guys throw it on a seven to a seven foot three, maybe a seven foot four. And the reason I do that, and this is going to be like kind of hard to explain because I'm 
not that smart, but understand the concept. So <laughs> if you have like something that's, let's say you got a, a fishing rod that's like six feet tall, right? And then if the fish is over here, well, the angle of the line is going to be like this. Well, now if you've got a rod that's eight feet tall, the angle of the line is going to be like this. So basically, whenever a fish is extremely shallow, the more the line is straight, the more you're going to be able to pull that bait out of the fish's mouth, Okay, which is very difficult to actually hook them if they're facing towards you. So the okay. longer the rod that you can get away with throwing, the more it's going to drive those hooks upward on the hook set. Okay. And you would think that going from a 7.3 to a 7.6 can't make much of a difference, but it may be, may be only in my head. And if it, if, even if it's only in my head, that that's enough to matter to me, you know, but it, I feel like I get 50% better hookups going from a seven foot three to a seven foot six. And that's just on straight missing them. Not to mention whenever you hook them and, and they, and you know, you barely got them hooked, they come off. But if I throw a seven foot three on, on a regular frog, I throw all the time. I feel like I just miss way, way more. And I, I'll go back like every summer. I'm like, man, it'd be easier to cast a seven foot three. So I'll read one up on a seven foot three and then I'll have a bad day on it. And I'm like, all right, we're done with this again. Put it back down. And I do that every couple of years. Just because you think about it, you're like, 7.3 to 7.6, how much difference can it actually make? But well, it feels listen, like it uh, makes a huge Yeah, apparently it makes a difference. I mean, that's so interesting you bring that up because that's as I was thinking about the opportunity to get to talk to you about this today, I had a bunch of personal questions I wanted to ask. And one of them was, man, I miss a lot of fish on a frog. And is that just because they're hitting heavy cover? It's just the way the frog bite is or what do you recommend? And where my head was going was more like modifying hooks or am I trimming legs or is there something else I can be doing? I'd never really thought about the geometry of the hook set in a longer rod. Now, that actually makes makes sense. I mean, you could probably measure the effect of that. Um, Yeah. The other thing is I tend to not be as accurate with that longer rod. So I'd have to practice a little bit more, right? It tends yeah. to be the shorter the rods, a little more accurate, yeah. skipping those things back in there. But that's fascinating. Okay. So that's why the seven, six to the eight foot. Okay. Talk to me about the power. Like, what are you looking for? Well, some people like a really stiff rod, right? Uh, some people like a little bit softer where you get some, some tip to help you throw that bait a little better. Like talk to me about the action that you've found to be most effective for both, you know, casting it, working it, hooking fish, landing fish. Yeah. So it's always, for me, it's been a seven foot six, either a medium heavy, extra fast, or it's going to be like a heavy fast. Okay. And I don't like heavy extra fast because then you don't have near enough of the rod loading. And I don't like a medium heavy fast because then you just like, you don't got enough of hooks yet. So medium heavy, extra fast or a heavy fast, they almost kind of fish the same, except the heavy obviously ha- takes a little bit more weight to actually load it. But okay. basically all you want to do is make sure that you can get a really good hook set because you've got two really heavy wire super line hooks you know almost all the frogs have like gamakatsu hooks in them they're super line hooks like they're super thick big giant bars wg tandems yeah you have to do yep all you have to do is get that bait in past the bar on the initial hook set and then never let your line go slack and usually you're going to land a lot of those fish okay so i i don't like a super stiff rod because a lot of times what you have happen whenever you throw like an absolute broomstick is you'll set the hook and then you'll cartwheel the fish through the water or you'll pull them so far through the water and, and then the rod's back behind you enough to where it you either got to move the rod forward or, yeah. or reel like this and it, it creates slack. And that's how I lose the most fish on a frog is whenever I move them too far on the initial hook set and end up getting slack in line and then come off. So okay. I actually like a rod that loads a little bit better. And, and it's, it's very difficult to find a rod that has a true fast action. And, and you need one that's, pretty fast to be able to cast it really well but whenever you set the hook a lot of rods just you know a lot of mass produced rods just are 
more moderate than they're advertised. That they just that's just a fact of the matter. So whenever you're really winching on one, almost all these seven six extra fast bend all the way to the stripper guide, you know, and it's right. like you know that's not really what they're designed to do. That's but that's not truly a happens. fast action, and that, right? Yeah, right. And, and that but that actually makes it good for that braid because you have so much more of the rod bending, keeping keeping tension on that line. The only thing, only time that I you know, really having a problem is whenever it's bending the flexing a little too much on the cast. Mm-hmm. That's whenever you're going to struggle skipping and get inconsistent skips and stuff like that. So okay. I, seven six. The, you can use a seven three. I know I just said I don't, but you can if that's the if you can't throw one bigger. It's just it's very, very difficult to find a rod that is over seven foot three that's very well balanced. Like almost every single one of them are just going to be tip heavy at that length. Because right. nobody wants to throw a two foot long handle, and that's what it would take to truly balance a seven foot six. You know? So that, but yeah, that's that's my normal rod I like. And I throw it on sixty pound braid. I know you asked about set up, and I want a rod tangent, but I throw it on a sixty pound braid ninety nine percent of the time. Okay. Super open water, skipping around docks. I will go down to fifty just okay. because it comes off so much smoother because there's just less drag on there. But in, in heavy, if I'm throwing in heavy cover at all, it's going to be sixty every single time. 8.3 to 1 gear ratio reel. And actually, Sunline has a fast reel. Right okay. And that's what I've been. Yeah. And I've been using that Sunline AMZ and then on that 8.3 to 1 super fast reel. And one thing that people have to be careful of, if you go faster than, than a 7 to 1, a lot of times the gears are so small that the teeth are so small on the gear that you'll actually get in the bind whenever you put so much pressure on the reel. So I've had buddies that are trying to throw these 10 to 1s and stuff. And they'll set the hook on them, and they literally cannot turn the handle until until they get like slack in their line. So I've never had the problem with an eight point three. I feel like I do fine with an eight point three, but I have tried a ten to one before just to see, or maybe it was a nine to one or a ten, but it was faster than an eight point three. I think it was a ten to one that I was using, and I felt like I could not move the fish. It's like you just can't generate any torque with those tiny little teeth on that gear. Yeah. So that's yeah. one thing to be careful of if you're in super heavy cover fishing mats. And you're having trouble actually reeling the fish. It might sound counterproductive, but if you drop down to a, a seven to one, you're actually going to be able to generate more torque, you know, yeah. from from a standstill to actually get it turning. So that that does help mat fishing a lot. Absolutely, that's a great point. Okay, so we're using the seven and a half foot rod. We're using the eight point three to one typically reel in the sixty or sixty five pound braid. Talk to me about your connection. You're going braid yep. straight to the frog in all cases, or yep. Okay, I go, what kind I go of knot do you like? Whole way. I tie a polymer knot. That's what I tie every single time. If I'm going to tie, you know, well, for a frog, I do, I do polymer all the time. If I'm going to throw like 20-pound braid on like a walking topwater or a small buzzbait or something, I'll do a double polymer because it's going to slip less. But okay. I do a polymer, and then every single time that I do a polymer, I cut the tag in, and I actually singe it down with a cigarette lighter to make it, you know, actually burn the tag in. And what that Ball does that is it keeps yep. the tag in. It, it keeps it from fraying and turning into a, a wet mop and actually weakening and going down into your knot. So I do that. I'm religious about it. I got buddies that are phenomenal frog fishermen and they don't believe in it at all. But that's one of the things that I do every single time that I tie one on. Well, I, let me let me consult the angler of the year leaderboard. Yeah, I, I'm taking your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we we want to hear your opinion, man. Yeah. I don't care if nobody else does it. You're doing something right. Excellent. So what else? There's a lot of, and this gets confusing to me, right? And, and we've talked about some of these things like the hook sets and, and catching fish and losing fish. And you've, you've sort of demystified a lot of this for me. This has been super helpful. But I was also going to ask you, like a lot of people modify their frogs, change their frogs. The most common being 
trimming the legs or, you know, that kind of thing. I know some people like markers on them to modify them. We've already talked about color. Like, are, are you, when you're taking your frog out of the box, are you doing anything else to it? Or, or um, talk to me about that a little bit. Yep. So if I'm going to be like skipping bushes with a frog, like trying to skip it in little holes, way back under undercut banks, stuff like that, I'm going to trim the legs every single time. I'm going to trim probably an inch and a quarter off of them. And one, okay. one of the main things for that is just the more material that you have, that they're going to be in the water like that you're trying to skip something and basically skipping it on the body every single time those legs hit the water i just got to figure that yep. it actually drag. it has to so if i'm going to be skipping back up in tight places i'm always going to trim the legs a good bit and then i've been the hooks up just a tiny amount basically whatever you got a frog the hooks will be pretty much parallel with the back of the frog and I'll by bend up, the you mean just you're, with- you're opening the gap a little I'm opening the gap of the hooks, and the main reason I'm doing that is just so when you run your finger down the back of the frog, it'll actually touch. Because whenever you get a frog out of the box, a lot of times you can rub right by the hook point and never get snagged. So I'll bend them up, and then I'll actually bend them so the frogs, I'll actually bend them away from the frog also, so that if the frog's sideways, it'll grab in their mouth. I just try to give it a little bit of clearance both ways, so that no matter how you rub down the hook point, it's going to start grabbing. That's all you need to do is you need it to initially start to penetrate. Okay. And then after, and then the way a hook works, after you get the tip, you know, the point in, it's going to go in the rest of the way past right. the bar. So all, all you need to do is just to start to grab. And that's the reason I get it clear. It's both ways up and out. And I mean, I, I've had some this year where like Okeechobee, all 15 bass I weighed in were on a frog, you know? Wow. First two days, I never lost the fish the first two days at all. And the third day I snatched one and I got a little excited. Look, I, I wasn't catching me that day. I snatched one and I pulled him way through the water. He landed. He actually landed right in front of the trolling motor. And it was like a three and a quarter, three and a half pounder. And he landed right in front of the trolling motor from the bank. And then he, and they're like, while I'm trying to reel up, I see him shaking the frog in his mouth in the water. And I watch it come out of his mouth, Ugh. like right there. The motor. I probably should have just tried to grab it. But in my mind, I was like, let's just reel it in. And then a little bit later that day, I lost another one. But the way that fish ate it, it ate it kind of funny. But yeah. with those things, like with me using a seven foot six rod and bending those hooks like that, I feel like my landing percentage is extremely good. Like it's one of my most confident baits that yeah. if I get a bite, I'm going to put it in the boat. Like I'm extremely confident with it. So, and that's the only things that I do different than anybody is I, I move the hooks out. You see a lot of people bend them up, but I also bend them out and use a little bit longer rod. Okay. I think it solves a lot of problems. And so that's really the key is running your finger down the back of that frog. And you want to just be able to skin your finger on the t- tip of those hook points. And then you're good to go. Yep. That, that's so, how okay. I and trim when you need to skip, the more you need to skip yep. and, and shoot it back under cover, the more you trim it. Um, that's super helpful to talk to me about, yep. like, I've heard a lot of things and I struggle sometimes. I mean, we all get a little excited when we see one of these unbelievable eats, right. And we'll take it away from them. Are you, yep you know, doing the count to three, are you waiting till you feel the fish before you set the hook? Like what advice would you give us on, on when you set the hook, when you get a bite? Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's kind of like intuitive for me. Okay. Like I see it, like I just see it happen. And I mean, sometimes it'll be just a beautiful bowl of water going in and I'll just be fixated on the frog and I'll see that it never went down, you know, and I'll be trying to focus on it and I won't set the hook. And other times, They'll get it, and I'll I'll just know. Like it ain't it ain't that I you know have a certain system to it. I just kind of like let my instincts tell me when to set the hook and when not to. And sometimes 
I'll snatch on them and I, my frog will still be floating there. You know, like yeah. sometimes I'll just see them boil on it and I'll be looking at my frog and know they don't have it and still set the hook. Like yeah. I, I can't help <laughs> now, it. Now you're starting to talk like me. This is, this is what happens to me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so when you I miss one like that, do you, do you fire the frog back in there or do you like have a fluke or a sinker or something as a backup eat though? Or like, how do you, do you have any advice for when you do miss fish, how you try to follow up on them? It kind of, it kind of depends, you know, for me, if I'm fishing grass, a lot of times, like I try to really, really focus and actually see the way that fish comes out and the way that fish live. And if I'm fishing like shoreline bank grass and that fish comes out and bites the frog, if I can see that that fish went back towards the grass, I'll throw a frog back in there. You know, okay. if I see that that fish swam out of the grass, I'm going to follow it up every single time with a wacky rig or a fluke or something like that. Okay. But those fish almost never bite, you know, nah. basically fish want to pin stuff against the bank. And that's one of the biggest keys to frog fishing is you want to put the frog in between the fish and the bank. Okay. And basically when they turn around and they're trying to pin it up against the bank, they just have a lot more success rate and have a lot more confidence attacking because they've like they've eliminated like 180 degrees of where that prey can actually escape. go. Right. And yeah. the other 180 and the other 180 degrees is at the bass so that they can pin it up against them. So those bass are always gonna try to pin it up against the bank. Yep. So that's one of the biggest ways to make fish stop missing the frog is it's a lot more of a hunger strike when they eat it like that. When they eat it way off the bank, a lot of times it feels like more of a curiosity bite or they're just kind of messing with it or something or just kind of boiling on it a little bit. Like yeah. they're not really trying to eat it. And it kind of depends on how the days went and the weeks went too. Like on Okeechobee this year, I followed up every single frog bite that I had for the first two days with something else. Never got one of them to bite the entire time. So wow. finally I said, hell, I'm going to throw the frog back in there, yep. you know? And then I had a bite. He missed it through the frog back in there and he ate it. I was like, I should have been doing this the whole time because that's the only thing they'll bite. You know? <laughs> and it just kind of depends on it kind of depends on the day and kind of the cover and stuff like yeah. that. But I would say as a general consensus, say yes, it's better to follow up with something different. Okay. But man, get them by the frog again, a lot more fun. Oh, it's it's one of the best, man. Okay, so this is super helpful. We've got our 7.6 uh, medium heavy or heavy fast action rod, our 8.3 to 1 gear ratio, our 60-pound braid. At risk of putting you on the spot, but uh, inquiring minds want to know, what specifically are you using this year? And this is, as we talk, you're leading the angler of the year race for the 2023 Elite Series. What's on your front deck right now when you're frog fishing? What What is your favorite setup? So th this is a setup I've been using a lot this year, but I've been using the 13 Fishing Envy 7.6 medium heavy extra fast and that is the rod that i like that's what i've caught them all on every single frog fish i've caught this year has been on that and then also the 13 fishing concept c 8.3 to 1 gear ratio that's been the you know rod reel and then the line has been the sunline amz 60 pound braid so that's been that's been the setup that i have settled on and i've used the 7.6 heavy forever and then 13 fishing rods are just a little bit more powerful than they're actually rated or a little more powerful than the competition. Their they're seven, six medium heavy is a lot closer to a heavy than a lot of other brands. So that's what made me kind of decide to the medium heavy. And it's been the golden setup this year. Yeah. And has that true fast action like you're talking about, right? Yeah. Not just labeled yeah. a fast action, but fishes as a powerful fast action. And in, in terms of frogs, you, you dialed in on any one particular frog or you using a variety or? I use a good variety. You know, the the main one that I use is a popping frog. You know, I've 
Spro makes the best prop and frog, in my opinion, that there is. But I throw a lot of a lot of different ones throughout the year. But if I okay. had to just settle on one, there you have it. That from directly from the current angler of the year. That's you, you can fish exactly what he fishes. All right, so I think we've covered a lot. So we got the seven six medium heavy or heavy fast action rod, the sixty pound braid, eight point three to one gear ratio reel. Uh, we're using a Palomar knot, and we're always burning that braid tag in to keep it from absorbing water and kind of degrading and slipping and all that. And bend and those break. hooks up and out a little bit, just enough so that you can get the point of the hook with your finger. Let's nerd out for a second on the rod building side of things. So. Anything you're doing differently as you get into these longer rods for the for the ones that you're custom building? Are you let's guides on top, spiral, what size stripping guides do you like to start with? Like talk to me a little bit about that. And and are you you talking about the balance on these longer rods? Are you lengthening your handle? Like give me, if you don't mind, since you're also a builder, like talk to me a little bit about any tips or tricks you found for putting these rods together yourself. So I, I experimented a little bit with making a longer handle, mm-hmm. and then it actually got to the point where if I was trying, because I cast right-handed and then also real right-handed, so I got to switch hands a lot. And whenever you have a too long of a handle, it gets kind of cumbersome to move back and forth. So it actually became a little bit of an issue, you know, for me with too long of a handle. But basically, the thing that I did was I just tried to make sure I lighten it up as much as possible, especially up towards the tip section. So I was using a FK2 real seat. I was using very very small cork, like like. I wish I could remember that cork I was using, but it fit into an SK2 real seat. It was a small little tapered cork. I was using that and a, and a small buck cap. No foregrip at all, like zero foregrip. Literally only had the, the nut that screwed onto the reel. Right. And every I was so meticulous about everything that went higher than the reel on the rod. Like I would actually take the, the top threads on the SK2 real seat and I would cut them, sand them down, make threads shorter so they didn't stick up past the, the reel at all. Right. I would use a, my stripper guide was always an LRV number six. And okay. that was, a, to me, with braid, it made the biggest difference. Okay. Because you have an angle of the way the reel sets on the rod and the way it goes to the first guide. And if you use a regular stripper guide, your line is actually going to almost always be pressing onto the top of the guide. Right. And it makes like a pinch point and actually adds resistance. Right. So you, you Put that LRV on there, the line just goes straight through it. And then all it is is a guide in case line ever goes left or right. Like it's not and the point of guides is not to control the line. It's to have something there in case something starts to wave or wiggle or something, just to keep it in it kind of in the track. It's to make a track system. It's not to like make a pinch point, you know, and and you know that because you built rods, like you don't want to add resistance by your guides. And I would always put a LRV number six, and I would use three. KBs, which is the Bigfoot number fives. I was going to use braid. And then after I got past those first four, it was all the lightest KTs that I could use all the way up to the tip. And then I tried to use, I can't remember the exact model of the tip that I, the tip top that I used, but I used three KBs, the rest of them KB, three KBs, the rest of them KTs, and then a tip. And I was meticulous about the thread being as small as it possibly could, you know light coat of epoxy because there because when you're going to be working a seven foot six rod all day long you want to be extremely extremely light because you're you're you know snapping that thing casting it constantly and that was my setup period i would use the lrv number six the rest of them number fives and to me that was like the brave setup that was it because if you went bigger 
I mean, a rod feels completely different if you go if you use number fours and then number fives. Like the rod, if you hold them in your hand, you only believe they're the same rod. And it's the same from fives to sixes. You know, and a six is actually a big guy nowadays for bass. Yeah, it is. It's right. actually big, you know, a five is like the standard. And the, and that, the reason for that is because calf braids so well. But fluorocarbon, I still always love the fours. Like I just I couldn't help it. Like I like the I like the smaller guys guys. I don't have to wear glasses yet or anything. I'm sure. I'm sure when you get a little older, lucky dog. Yeah, you don't want to. If you got, you know, eyes not quite as good, you probably want to be putting line through number fours all the time. You know. Hey, well, there's a lot of reasons to choose, but you're right. I mean, anything you can do to reduce weight in the tip section of the rod, uh, as long as the <clears> smallest <throat> guy that will get the job done and pass all your connections, if there are any, and all that, is exactly the right way to go. So. That's awesome. Super helpful. Yeah. So I, I wish LRV I to three KBs to KTs to the top. Yep. That, that's size what I did. Six, I, I wish fives, I could remember all the, the way up. Yep. That's what I did. I wish I could remember the exact handle length that I used. Okay. I, I have it wrote down actually in a notebook, but I can't no, remember. Yeah, that's fine. We'll post it. I, yeah. And, and again, we, we, we have an episode that talks about ergonomics and handle links and all that kind of stuff. But one of the yeah. things that I think you've learned very intuitively as an angler, but you also now understand as a builder is, you know, the rod has kind of a natural balance point, And then we start affecting that when we put components on it, moving that seat up or back yep. just a little bit can have a huge impact on how tip heavy or yep. tip light that rod feels to you, even though the absolute weight hasn't changed when the balance changes. So, uh, no, you're, I, I personally think you're hitting on some very important points about, you know, getting it long enough to assist you, but not so long that it's cumbersome or, or awkward. And again, yep. we're all of different stature. Like I know from, we we've met personally, I know you're a pretty tall guy, you have pretty long arms. So yeah. you, you might be a little more comfortable with a longer handle than, than I might be, or someone who's maybe five, six might be right. But the point right. is still the same. The physics are still the same. Anything you can do to reduce weight off the tip section of the rod and sort of optimize, you know, be be aware that there's a variable here with the length of the rod and how it feels and fishes for you and how it affects the balance and, and how fatiguing it is to fish it all day. Right. And, and very few of us right. fish as hard as you fish uh, on, on the elite series. Right. But it still absolutely affects how much you enjoy fishing the rod, how sharp you stay, how fatigued you get, you know, all those things matter towards the end of the day. Right. Definitely. Especially day after day after day, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And just the confidence, like, like whenever you, Pay attention to every little detail. And you don't have to do that. Like in rod building, you can just throw something together and and make a just a complete general rod. And that's fine. Sure. Like that's probably what is optimal to do. But whenever you pay attention to every little detail and think that you have it like like when I was building rods, like it was exactly what I wanted. So it was like this is like the confidence levels off the charts now whenever mm -hmm. you're using that equipment, because you're like, I don't know of a better way that this could be done. So your confidence is just sky high. And again, right. and with every technique, having that much confidence is going to make you that much more successful at it. Right. So I mean, that was that was something for me is I'm like, there has never been a better frog rod built, in my opinion. So this right. is this is the the deal, you know, and that that confidence is everything in fishing. Yeah, and it's okay if the ultimate rod for you is a little different than the ultimate rod for me, right? But that that's to me, that's the value right, of yeah. custom, that ability to build a technique specific angler specific thing that's perfect i mean the, the analogy i try to give people sometimes is like if you go and i'm not a golfer but if you go on the pga tour and you see these guys with their like lob wedges or whatever 
they're so specific about whether it's 60 degrees or 61 degrees or 62 degrees. They're specific about how many grooves there are, whether they're U-shaped, V-shaped, square-shaped. Like, And at one point, you'd say, man, does this stuff really matter? But when you're as good as these guys are, they can maximize the performance out of that equipment. And that's like you as an elite series pro. There's some of these little details that may not matter to the average weekend angler. But when you're earning a living doing this and this is your specialty and you're able to master, you know, when you make a small tweak that improves your casting accuracy, if you're a good enough caster to, to harvest that performance, right? Like it all matters. Right. And, and again, yeah. that's such a great case to me for custom rods is this, this technique specific angler specific dial it in and get it just absolutely perfect. And all these, there's nothing wrong with factory rods, St. Croix, Loomis, so many of these people cash and they're building better factory rods than have ever been built, but they're still built to the average. Oh, yeah. For the masses, right? They And they have to worry about things that you don't have to worry about, or I may not have to worry about, where you know exactly what reel you're going to be using, you know exactly what line you're going to be using, you know exactly what notch you're going to be using. So, again, nothing at all against factory rods, which are better than they've ever been. But, you know, the, that's to me, it's such the such so much of the value of custom is this ability to be technique specific angler specific and dial it in like like you said to the point where it's like hey if i don't have success i know it's not because of the rod or the reel or the setup because this is as good as it gets right like i have a my buddy colby right. and i we talk about this all the time i'm not that elite of a shot with a rifle right but every single one of my rifles shoots well under half an inch why is that well i want to know when i go out there that if i missed it was me I want to eliminate the confidence that gives you when you're like, look, my equipment's better than me. So if I mess this up, it's all on me. I don't know. That just gives me a certain peace of mind that I've taken care of everything I can take care of prior to that shot. You know, it sounds like the same thing you're saying. I know the confidence you have going out there with uh, an absolutely optimized rod reel setup is, hey, all I got to do is go do my thing and, and, and everything should work out, right? Yep. And that's exactly how, you know, you should feel about it because if you want to make, you know, improve at anything, you have to understand that a lot of times it's your fault whenever something goes wrong. Right. And if you got faulty equipment, it's just, it does make it harder to improve because you always have a little bit of an excuse. Right. And when you take the excuses away, that's whenever you start to improve. Like when you, when you're using the best equipment ever and still not getting it done, that's yeah. whenever it's time to reflect and say, Hey, well, then what do I need to do? And that's, I want to know what do I need to do to get better? Like all the time. Awesome. Well, man, this has been like, I, I, I was hoping I'd learn some stuff. I'm, I'm kind of like, my mind's a little blown on the seven foot six length and the yeah. hook set things. Now I'm literally going to stop this podcast when we finish and I'm going to go order some blanks and, uh, and and build some longer frog rods and try to get them out there this summer before it's over. I'm going to, I'm going to spend some time at Lake Gunnersville here in, in a few weeks and I need to, I'm often throwing that vixen, but I'm going to have to throw, uh, I'm going to have to throw some frogs on some of those weed lines and see what the seven, six does for me. I'm and now, now I've got the yeah. system. Get that point blank seven, six heavy. That's the one. Yeah, man, there we go. That's what I'm talking about. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Congratulations on your continued success on the Elite Series. And I just, it's so nice to be able to have the uh, current leader of the Angler of the Year race. Uh, I mean, I know everybody wants a blue trophy. I know everybody wants to win the Classic. And I realize those can be life-changing events. But as a fan, I just think Angler of the Year is so much more difficult uh, because of the consistency across so many days on so many bodies of water, so many uh, 
different weather conditions and challenges. Uh, it's just, it's such a, it, I, I don't know if people who aren't close to tournament fishing understand how hard it is to win even one of these events. And then to prove yourself the most consistent among this literally elite series of anglers, you know, this elite group of anglers is just so impressive. And so congratulations on your success. Sounds like you've been getting ready and, and, and doing some practice for this smallmouth swing up north. Feeling good? Yeah, I'm working. I've been trying to do everything that I can do. And for, for what you touched on, you said you think the AOI is the most impressive. All of us anglers, that's what we respect the most, like 100%. And I feel got a long way to go to win it, you know, but sure. to me, that is the, that's the holy grail of bass fishing is anger if you're on, on any tour, you know, whether it be, you know, the MLF or the MPFL or any, or the elite series, like that's what all of us anglers respect the most. The classic is great. Lots of exposure, lots of money comes with it. Like big yep. sponsors come with it, all that type of stuff, but it's only 15 bass, you know, 15 yeah, right. bass to change your life. It's not that way with years. Every single day, you know, 20 every bass single fish on every single day, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, that's right. yeah, it's just so, it's so brutally competitive. It is so tough, but it's, uh, it's just an unbelievable showing from you so far this year. You've been incredibly consistent and, and really have not had an off day. So congratulations on that. I just, I marvel at it. I think it's remarkable and I, I hope you're able to have fun and fish loose out there. And, uh, we're so proud of you and look forward to your continued success. And thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. Appreciate you tuning in to the Mastering Rod Building podcast. Please download, subscribe wherever you get your podcast content. That's going to wrap it up for this week. But if you'd like to be notified as soon as all new podcasts are released, just text the word fishing to 587-317-6099. We'll add you to our email list so you can stay up to date. Thanks for listening.